For some of you, it's your first time. For others, it is not. But for today, I would like to welcome you all to Epic Realms. Friends and enemies, heroes and villains, welcome to Epic Realms. Before we get started, I want to let you all know that it is November, which means it's Movember. Movember is actually an organization that helps fight prostate cancer, testicular cancer. It also provides mental health awareness and suicide prevention help. So you can help by going to Movember.com or follow my link on any of my social medias there, and you can go ahead and donate uh, to our team. So. Thank you very much for participating on that. You can also find the link in our show notes for the podcast. Our guest today is this year's Diana Jones Award winner for excellence in gaming. His RPG, Coyote and Crow, raised over a million dollars on their Kickstarter. Please welcome the one and only Connor Alexander to Epic Rounds. Hey. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. I yeah. really appreciate it. Well, about the Kickstarter? Holy cow, over a million dollars for an RPG. That's like a record, isn't it? Uh, I, or it was it a record at the time. Of, yeah, it's some sort of record. I think for like a the an indie core RPG book, I think it set the record. Um, I, I think there's been plenty since then that have, that have beaten that total number, but it's usually stuff like Lord of the Rings or whatever. So yeah, I'll take I'll take the, uh, the wins where I can get them. Right. <laughs> what was your first yeah. introduction to tabletop role-playing games? Oh, uh, and I, how old were yeah, I was 10, 11. Uh, it was the uh, the basic, the old TSR basic D&D set. Okay. Um, played an elf right out of the box. Like the red, and, red uh, blue box? The, it was, it was the, yeah, it was the red. And then I quickly graduated to the blue box. I, okay. I got I had, had to have more immediately, right? right. So um, I didn't last long on the red box. But uh, and then and then, of course, it was on to AD&D and then everything else TSR produced, you know, Gamma World and Top Secret and all those other games. And then later on into like, you know, Palladium stuff uh, like Rifts yeah. um, and then Vampire the Masquerade um, and then back to D&D. It took me a long time to get back to D&D. Actually, I didn't come back to it until uh, 3.5. Um, and uh and then, and then adult life caught up with me, and it became one of those scheduling nightmares to get right. games together. So. <laughs> what was something back then that you really loved about role playing that you still really do? Um, for me, so I, I'm a person who, because uh, I also play tabletop board games, so I do like a sense of structure and rules to my games. Yeah, but I found really quickly that D and D was. But for better or worse, was very focused on minis and and ranges and numbers and uh, spatial geography. Okay. And for me, I'm much more of a theater of the mind person. So I think for me, it was a real wake up call when I played both Vampire the Masquerade and Cyberpunk 2020. Um, even though Cyberpunk 2020 has some crunch to it, the the sort of open world possibilities just felt so much bigger to me in those worlds. Yeah. Um, I think that's when I I stopped 
playing D&D because I was almost always a, a, a game master or a DM when I played. But I stopped just playing it like a tabletop game. And I think it was at that point that I really started investing in like world building and storytelling and creating complex arcs. Those were the games that inspired that for me. That's awesome. Yeah. When we're looking at at RPGs and you talked about you started at the age of 10 and then eventually mm-hmm. adult life became a struggle. Did, yeah. did role playing have an effect on like going to school or or maybe college? I don't know if you went to college or not. Did, did role yeah. playing have an effect on that positive or negative in your life? Uh, I mean, certainly I was I went through the whole satanic panic. So yeah. for me, D&D was something you hid you know, I mean, it, it was it was something you were very careful about sharing in your social circles if you wanted to have, you know, continue in that social circle. So uh, from that perspective, and I did go to college. I didn't go to college till later in my life, though. I was in my 30s when I went to, to get my bachelor's. Um, it, what's funny is I'm terrible at math. I'm terrible at math. And I credit most of my passing through liberal arts level math classes with my understanding of Dungeons and Dragons and, and all of the <laughs> charts and tables and math that goes along with it. It was the only thing that kept my my, my brain fresh on that stuff. Um, but no, I, I honestly think that by the time I hit college, um, I think as a sort of a secondary effect from RPGs, I was pulled into a lot more um, fantasy circles than I might have otherwise. I was generally a sci-fi guy, yeah. but being around groups of people who play D&D, you almost can't avoid people dragging you into Tolkien and Anne McCaffrey and all those other, you know, fantasy giants. So it, it exposed me to a lot more literature, which is always a good thing. So. Yeah, that's awesome. At what point did you decide that you're going to start like designing your own stuff or working on your own? Was like, was it Coyote and Crow or was it long before that you were working on stuff? <laughs> no, as um, uh, I was 12, I think, when I designed a game called Star Rangers. It was terrible, a horrible <laughs> RPG. It was a complete Star Wars ripoff. Um, and I, I think that that the spark of that sat dormant for a long time. And it wasn't until I was working in the game industry and I, I didn't start working in the game industry until 2014 um and it was about 2016 that i i sort of uh i sort of got fed up with the lack of representation i was seeing in the game industry and in the content that the game industry was producing um and i i just decided that i had enough bandwidth and enough economic safety net and enough uh push in there to support spending some time and investing some money in trying to produce something uh, and that first that first thing was actually a really light card game called Biff Bam Pow. It never even got out of the prototype stage. Um, but uh, but that's when I started realizing that, like, I didn't want to just make a game. I wanted to make a game that said something about my own native heritage. Um, and that that pulled me in toward Coyote and Crow. And that that just became a rabbit hole. I mean, I, it started as a project where. I thought I would maybe have four or five people, you know, maybe two or three writers and one or two artists working. And it just snowballed. I mean, we ended up with, I think, more than 30 people on the project by the time it was done, you know, between artists and editors and writers and layout and all that. Um, Yeah, it just kind of it kind of took on a life of its own. And and to some degree, that was because of the success of the Kickstarter. Um, We we certainly scaled up by about the second week. I started going, oh, boy, this is bigger than I had originally planned. And I need to add some more heft to what we're going to deliver. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Did you then you created the game and then like the company after it? Because the company's called the same thing. Or was the company first and then the game? 
Yeah. So that was, that was a rush job. I mean, frankly, um, I was just planning on producing the game and being done. I had a full-time job in the game industry that I loved. I was working with some amazing publishers. I was very happy in that industry, but I realized that as the Kickstarter took off that I had a, there was a question before me and that is, is, is this all I'm going to do? And I, I had some people in the industry, some very well-known names in the RPG world, give me the advice of fulfill your Kickstarter and then walk away and just pocket that profit. Just step away because there's no life to be had in RPGs. There's no, there's no sustainable life or, or maybe not no sustainable life. It's very difficult to manage a full-time job as an RPG creator. It's a very small group of people, right? Yeah. And so I had that question of, well, do I just pocket the money and walk away? Or do I reinvest this money and try to make something of this beyond just the core RPG book? Yeah. And so that was a, a, a crazy two weeks, probably the middle, the middle two weeks of the Kickstarter where the numbers were just climbing. And I had to give my bosses notice at work and start hiring things like a CPA and um, uh, an attorney and making sure that everything was going to be in all of the buckets that it need to be in financially and, and legally. Yeah. Um, and and it's I'm certainly not a person who has any kind of business background. I'm a I'm a creative. I have my, my degrees right. in communications with a focus on film and television. So the business end for me has really been the struggle. I mean, that's been, you know, uh I think it's tough for anybody, especially during COVID, to keep a business open. Right. But I'm so I'm learning a lot along the way. Yeah. What was it like having those challenges? Because you're you said you're not you're not a business person, and now you're going from working another job to going. I have to, I, I have to do all of this. I got to go all in. Like that's got to be yeah. immensely difficult. Yeah, there was there was definitely a uh, a point at which I nearly crapped my pants. Um, uh, I, I think when you start, you know, I, I'm I grew up as a fairly minimum wage kid. I was sort of a service industry kid for a long time until I got to college and got my degree and sort of moved on. So I've, I've always been sort of a paycheck to paycheck person. And when you start talking about, um, print runs where, you know, you're talking tens of thousands of dollars, where you're talking about a tax bill that's in the six figures, those numbers are terrifying numbers to be throwing around. And, um, Quite frankly, those first few months were are sort of a blurred panic for me. Um, I'm really thankful that I had a good support system around me and some folks to bounce stuff off of. Um, and I'm really thankful to both my CPA and my attorney for sort of corralling that information for me. But it was it was a steep learning curve and one I'm I'm still going through. I mean, I think you, if you talk to any game publisher, RPG or tabletop board game, they're going to tell you that you know there's there's you continually stumble over the things you don't know, and then you have to pay extra to catch up to where you're supposed to be. And so we we try to cover each other. We try to give each other warnings, but there's just so many obstacles, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, taxes when you're going to conventions, like, pay, you know, paying taxes out of state or right. um, dealing with tariffs for importing things. I mean, there's all of this gross sort of underneath the business stuff that happens beyond the creative end of the game. Um, and then there's the creative end, right? There's the, there's the managing all of these artists. You know, again, I, I thought I would have two or three artists, maybe, and I ended up with more than 25 and trying to both find those people and then vet them. And then, and then basically 
try to get them to do something that hadn't been done before, because there's very little out there when it comes to indigenous futurisms. Most indigenous artists themselves are either working in contemporary mediums, like, you know, comic books where they're doing superhero stuff, right. or they're doing stuff uh, like Old West or colonial period material. I mean, that's where the, the majority of, you know, consumers are going for that kind of stuff. Right. So getting people to shift their artists, to shift their perspectives to a futurism that doesn't have colonialism in it, not just not just like a post-apocalyptic version of our world, but one where colonialism never happened. Right. And it's, it's a big ask. Yeah, it is. And hopefully you get, you know, you have people with good imagination and good thoughts as to how things would have progressed yeah. over the years as well. Yeah. Um, and I'm assuming a lot of knowledge as to the culture and how the culture would evolve as well over that time, because, you know, that's, yeah. that's one of the mainstays about uh, a lot of that. Is, is that how yeah. would the culture have evolved throughout time? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think one of my proudest things about kiting for one of the things I'm most proud of is what I didn't include. Um, I've gotten a, a little bit of criticism for this, and, but I, there's a good reason for it. Um, I didn't put in a lot of specifics about real world tribes and their alternate histories into the book. And I was really firm on this. I had a few writers who wanted to include more specifics. And I said, look, we've only got 400 pages and there's more than 500 tribes in North America. Right. We can't give an alternate history to all of these. And if we can't give them to all of them, then I don't want to do any of them. And instead, I would rather leave that sort of an open end and let these, the real world, the players, the native players out there, let them tell that story. That's, that's for them to tell, not for me to tell. So hopefully I created sort of a sandbox environment where the players and the story guides out there can come in and, and imagine their own native histories in this world. Um, and hopefully maybe someday we'll put out expansion books where we can detail some of those. I'd love to do that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. If you could go back and give yourself free Kickstarter, one piece of advice mm -hmm. without, without, without breaking the news of what would happen, but one piece of advice, what would that one piece of advice be? You know, <clears throat> Before we started this, I said you could ask me anything, and now I'm really regretting that because that <laughs> that is a tough question. It is. Um, and it doesn't have to be just one. It could be a couple things. That I'm, yeah, I think I think the biggest thing. I think the biggest thing is, um, uh, and I think there's sort of some some core or uh, sub sub things to this one. There's an umbrella thing here, and that umbrella thing is is stop caring so much what everybody thinks. I had a bad tendency to. Um, overreact to both positive and negative comments as I was developing the book and as I was getting involved in this. And I think in the end, when I look back, most of my instincts in the first place were good ones. And every time I questioned them because somebody else was questioning me and I almost, I almost changed a direction. Uh, I'm glad I didn't. And I, I wish I could have gone back and just told myself, dude, trust yourself a little more you're on the right path. Just keep going on this path. Forget what everybody else is saying. Don't look at the comments. Stay off Reddit. Yes. You know. <laughs> um, yeah. That's that's a, I mean that's a, I think that's good advice for everybody. That's good advice for everybody else. Just stay off Reddit. <laughs> just stay off. <laughs> uh, so you you kind of touched on one of the subjects that I wanted to talk about is the the mm. representation of you mentioned representation of all of the tribes yeah. and yeah. Know, if you don't want to put them all in, if you can't put them all in there, maybe not put them in there at all. Yeah. What about people that might not know? Cause obviously I, I think education is a big part of what you're doing as yeah. well. 
So yeah. how yeah. do you balance that, giving them information and education and allowing them to learn about some of those things mm-hmm. while still leaving out stuff about individual tribes? Yeah. So I think, I think some of it is almost subliminal. Um, there's, there's stuff we put in there that I think I, I'm not a big fan of, of pan Indianism. Uh, I'm not f- sure if you're familiar with that term, but it's this sort of, so it's the idea that there are, are cross cultural concepts within North American tribes that, um, we can all agree on. And then they sort of become this sort of, um, uh, language they've almost become like a language that that both natives used amongst each other but then also that non-natives can sort of recognize and the problem is is that sometimes that can dilute the uniqueness of tribes but there's also something to be said for it because i think it can be a bridge to bring folks in i mean i think i'm thinking of a really easy example is fry bread you know fry bread is something that is post-colonial but most natives know about, even if it wasn't a part of their culture, they're familiar with it and they've had it and, and non-natives know what it is, right? So it's a, it's a product of that or, or sort of. But um, I think there's a lot of stuff within Coyote and Crow that's on the subliminal end that we put in there. Ideas about uh, how a lot of natives view the world, view the universe, view our, our place in this world. Um, there's also stuff that's less subliminal. Like, for example, um, when you look at some of the mythological beings that we put in there, while most of them are fictionalized, um, a good example, one of one that's not is Deer Woman. And one of the reasons we chose Deer Woman is because Deer Woman appears across versions of Deer Woman appear across multiple uh, 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 indigenous groups. Um, and so we felt like, OK, she's one we can include. Um, and we didn't, we sort of made a sort of a generic version, but something that comes across in almost every version of Dear Woman is she's this brutal version of justice and, um, um, someone you do not want to mess with. And although there can be a, a, a sense of, of goodness to, uh, Dear Woman from a certain perspective, a certain good quality, uh, but a wholesome quality. But in the end, if you look beyond that, it's really dark and it's, it's no BS and you do not want to mess with Dear Woman. And I think that's those kind of things for non-natives approaching the book, even if they don't consciously know as they're reading the book and playing this game, they're absorbing that information. And hopefully it changes their perspectives when they interact with real natives. They're going to see something that's familiar or hear a familiar tone or word choice. Um, at least that's, that's my hope. Um, and maybe they'll, maybe they'll behave a little differently if they're at a games table with a native. That's, that would be great too. Yeah. And how does that work with people? You know, obviously you have people that are native that are playing the game, but then having someone that's like me playing yeah. at the table as well, how do you deal with, with that balance or, or, you know, we talked a little bit before the stream and about the article you wrote about cultural appropriation and things like that. How does that work out? Would you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think at its core, it, it, it isn't even about it isn't even a native issue. It's more a general a general um, uh, set of guidelines, I think, when it comes to culture and people dealing with people who are not from your culture. Um, there's ways to approach it respectfully. And it doesn't have to be this sensitive, sore subject. 
I think most most natives I know, and when I say most, I'm being like 95% of them or more are happy to share things about their culture as long as those things are appropriate things. They're happy to talk about them. I think where you where where anybody would cross the line is when you approach those topics in a way where you're fetishizing them or objectifying them or or basing your questions off of bad stereotypes. And while I don't ever blame an individual for for clinging to those bad stereotypes, you kind of have to um, I think as a general rule, when you're approaching somebody with a different culture is consider how you're, how you're approaching those stereotypes and whether or not you're um, facilitating them or encouraging them. Um, I think we tried to set up the game in a way that when you sit down, if you just play it right out of the book, you're fine. Anybody can play. Anybody can play this game. And unless you are going out of your way, it's almost impossible to be culturally appropriate in the game. It's almost impossible. I don't think we're ever going to end up seeing like somebody come to a game in a feathered headdress. I don't think anybody who would come to a table in a feathered headdress would ever want to play Coyote and Crow. So I think that problem kind of solves itself. But I do think there are well-meaning liberal people, and I I mean this in the American term of the political sense, sort of left-leaning uh, folks who want to be good allies, but who have become so overly sensitive that they treat us like they're walking on eggshells. And nobody wants to be babied and nobody wants to be coddled, right? So I think I think if a person just sits down and goes, yeah, I'd love to play this game. Tell me about it. And then if a native person wants to inject something, they can, you know, inject a piece of their own culture into it, they can. And then that other that a person at the table, the non-native, can just say, hey, can you tell me about that? I don't think there would ever be a conflict. And I think what it boils down to is just common courtesy and, and decency. Um, I know that that, and that blog post is, is pretty fiery. But the mm-hmm. reason it's fiery is, is because, frankly, I'd probably been asked, I'm not kidding when I say this, probably asked 30 times within a month, is it okay for me to play this game because I'm non-native? I mean, you don't ever hear that about other games, right? Like you don't right. ever hear that about other other uh, other genres of material. But because this genre is about indigenous people, all of a sudden it's everybody's on eggshells. And that's all I want to try to avoid. No yeah. eggshells. Yeah. Just play the game and have a good time. And support and support it because it, it, if you're really, truly an ally, yeah. then buy the game. Yeah. <laughs> buy the game, play the game, have fun. Uh, how yeah. many people? How many people? Native American people. Uh, that's not. That's not the correct term these days, right? It's it's indigenous people. It, it depends. Native American is sort of broad. Canadians tend to use more First Nations. First Nations. Um, yeah, tribe is something that natives tend to use amongst each other. But um, it really depends on who you ask at this point. Okay. Um, indigenous, Indigenous Americans, Indigenous is more broad and global. Yeah. So, yeah. How many? But, how many have you had on staff or have worked on this game? With you. Ooh, okay, so all of our writers, Roughly. as a rule, as a very hard and fast rule, I don't ever allow non-native writers to write content for Coyote and Crow. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's just a line I decided I, I couldn't cross. Now, when it comes to art, I would say about two thirds of our writers are indigenous. I'm, I'm sorry, our artists are indigenous. Um, but uh, and the ones who are not, I kind of have to have conversations with them and go, look. 
I know you've had to do with art directors before, but you're going to have to go through an extra level of that. I'm going to either pair you with a writer who is going to very much like curtail or critique your art and tell you what you should or should not put into this piece. And then it's going to have to go by me as well. Um, or if I'm dealing with them directly, I'll just, you know, I'll, I'll double down on, on what needs to be in that image to, to keep it in line with what we want. Um, but I, I try to hire indigenous folks wherever I can. Um, especially the ones that want to get their foot into the industry. Yeah. Like I feel like I'm in that lucky position to be able to occasionally offer folks. Technically, I am a company of one. So everybody who works for me is a freelance contractor. Right. And pay for RPGs in, in the freelance world is just terrible. I mean, it is not good stuff. And I think the the, the industry in general has built up um, uh, a a systemic issue with bad pay and bad treatment. Right. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to switch that. I'm trying to offer better, uh, better environment for my for my freelancers. I, I guess you'd have to talk to them on whether or not I'm successful. But <laughs> well, if they keep coming back, that's how you know, right? <laughs> <laughs> I try to offer better than average pay when it comes to writing, and I try to give better than average pay when it comes to art. And that's that's all I can do uh, right now. That's so. great. That's great. Give yeah. us a give us a rundown because you know you talked about how how it came into being a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, walk us through the development. You got the Kickstarter going because was oh, it sure. was it done before Kickstarter? Um, or were you still like first working on it? Yeah, so that like the first draft of the game was done, and I'd already gotten it into some alpha testing, um, and I already had the key pieces of art. Um, I was I was lucky enough going into this that even though this was my first Kickstarter, I'd been working in the game industry for a few years, so I had I had good a good ground level idea of what what a successful Kickstarter would look like on the on the page. So I knew I needed to have certain key pieces of art. I knew I needed to have a good video presentation, um, and I wanted to have a core understanding of the mechanics I was going to present so that I could ask answer questions when people asked about the, you know, the, the, the gameplay. Um, so by the time the Kickstarter rolled around, I, I had a good chunk of the, of the writing done. Um, and we were really just sort of filling it out at that point. And at that, and, and the nice thing about the Kickstarter was that with that extra money, I started bringing in more artists and, and deciding, Oh, I'm not going to do a hundred pieces. I'm going to do 150 pieces of art. And um, really sort of ramping up up my scale on that stuff. Um, but we we actually, I don't know how I managed it, considering almost every stage something was late. Um, but we still managed to get the Kickstarter out. I, I'd have to go back and look exactly. But I think I promised the PDF in November and we delivered it in December. Maybe I'm wrong on that. Either way, it was it was far less than a year that we were late. Um, which by Kickstarter standards is pretty good, especially considering we we promised a 300-page book and we delivered a 471-page book. So I feel pretty good about that. Um, but by the time the book was going to the printer, I already knew I was going to be doing some custom dice through Q Workshop. I knew I was going to be doing the story guide screen. Um, and we were I was already starting to develop um, stories, for uh, playable stories for the game because right out of the gate, the biggest question that I did not anticipate was, what kind of stories can we play? And so I immediately started tapping my writers and going, oh, man, we need to start whipping this together now so that by the time the book is out in the world, we can start offering some adventures to people. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of a that was the rush, I think, right after uh, after the Kickstarter. So there was a lot of development going on 
straight through. Like as soon as the book ended, we were going right into developing stories. So from from initial idea to to Kickstarter, what was that kind of development oh, like? Was it just like you yeah. on your off time whenever you could sitting down yeah. writing and yeah. you know maybe so was, outlines and designs? <laughs> yeah, I was working like 50 hours a week in my day job. And so I was putting in, you know, 10 to 20 hours. Whenever I could, I was doing writing. So it started in 2018. Um, I started writing. I had the idea at Gen Con of 2018. Um, and I started writing it. Uh, and I, I think it was around mid-2019 um, that I got it to the table for the first time and had some players give me some feedback. Um I already knew that I wanted a D12 mechanic. I knew I wanted a dice pool concept. I knew I wanted it to be very theater of the mind. And I wanted I wanted more than anything to be able to play the game at the table without having to continually open the book and reference charts. That was a key thing for me. Um, part of that is that I'm not a fan of that as a, as a game player. But then also I really wanted to keep it in line with uh, indigenous ideas around storytelling and uh, the oral tradition. So the idea was, is, you know, let's keep it as much on the table and verbal as we can. Um, that's also why our combat system is so light on uh, things like ranges and things like that. The, the, the combat system is very theater of the mind. Okay. Um, so, yeah, so around by around 2019, um, I had developed the first full version of the game. And then as 2020 rolled around, we started to, I started to dial in art and bring on other writers. They started to contribute. So by March of, or actually by around January of 2021, I was pretty dialed in. I think the the big the big moment for me that I knew I was ready to go was when we locked in the band called A Tribe Called Red for the music over our music video on the Kickstarter, and they gave us rights to that song for free. Oh, nice! And the thing about that song is natives natives just know it. Like it's one of the biggest like native focused or native created club hits of the last ten years. It's everybody knows it, but non-natives don't know it, but it's really catchy. It really works for this video. And so combining that with the fresh art, I got to give a lot of credit in our Kickstarter to that video. I honestly think it really was something fresh and unique and it it just drew folks in. Nice. That's when I knew I had it. What, uh, what things were crucial in the, like, uh, in Kickstarter, they have a lot of these extra things. Like we hit a certain goal, you get something extra. So what mm, kind of stretch yeah. goals did you kind of have? And were there stretch goals you look back and you're like, man, I really, really wish we would have done this for a stretch goal? Yeah, so I we screwed up on the stretch goals for this game badly. Um, part of that is, is that, so, and this is not Heather's fault at all, but Heather O'Neill, I brought Heather O'Neill on from Ninth Level Games, and she's amazing. I'd never run a Kickstarter before. I brought her on to help me run the Kickstarter, and she saved my ass in that Kickstarter. She really was awesome. I can't recommend her enough. But we also didn't understand just how quickly this game was going to ramp. So we had built out like five, um, five stretch goals, and I think it was like you know UV spot UV cover, um, which we did. Um, There was a a mobile app which we did. I'm trying to remember the other ones. Um, oh, there was a, a, a character name generator. So you could generate a character in our fictional in-game language called Chahi. Um, we hit all those stretch goals. But the problem was is that we we hit them all so quick that we were scrambling to find more stretch goals. 
And then I had at the same time, I had other RPG folks, folks who've done Kickstarters before going, stop it with the stretch goals. You're going to, you're going to kneecap yourself trying to do cool things. Um, and the last one that we, we threw up was I thought was ridiculous would never happen, which was the, if we hit a million dollars, we'd get Rebecca Rowanhorst to do a, a coyote and crow story. Um, and we hit it and she had already agreed to do it. And we haven't been able to get her to do it since. She's been so busy. And every time we've spoken, she says, oh, I still want to do it. I still want to do it. But we were in contract. And I don't, I can't pin her down. All I can do is ask nicely. So we're kind of stuck on that stretch goal. And I, that's the one thing that kind of gnaws at me is that I haven't been able to get that story out to my backers. I would love to be able to do that. Yeah. But that makes sense. um, She's an amazing author. So this game's won multiple awards including we yeah. talked about the Diana Jones Award. Yeah. Tell us about your reaction when you start, you know, from your first award all the way up to winning the Diana Jones Award and kind of what your reaction was and your feelings about it because you already had a really successful Kickstarter, right? And then you get yeah. start, start piling up these awards. What it, Tell us from your point of view what, what you're feeling, what you're looking at. I, I think I probably have a maybe a different point of view than some folks in the RPG industry. Um, I... I didn't, obviously I didn't expect the Kickstarter to do as well as it did. Um, and I also didn't really expect any awards to come in. So the first thing I was nominated for was a Nebula award. It's not even in the game industry, right? It just, it was for yeah. game writing in the, in the sci-fi. And traditionally that category is for video games. And so being nominated for that just felt very left field and out of the blue. And it was lovely. And I, you know, I lost a thirsty sword lesbians from evil hat productions and Hey, cool. They're awesome. That's, that's great. I don't feel bad about that at all. But I kind of thought at that point, Oh, that's the end of that. And I'm, I thought, Oh, I'm, I'm way too niche to be, um, even though I did a million dollars of Kickstarter, I'm way too niche within the RPG industry in general or the hobby gaming industry in general to really kind of catch any kind of attention. And I think that was reinforced when I didn't get nominated for any Ennies that year. Um, and um, and then and then all of a sudden the nomination started rolling in. And I don't know what changed there. Um, it's it's really flattering. Being recognized by your industry peers is always nice. I'm hugely humbled by it. I've got them all back behind me mm-hmm. uh, back here on the wall back here. And I'm really proud of them. Um, but I think where I where I diverge from maybe a lot of my peers in the RPG industry is that while their recognition is great, I'm far more interested in getting recognition within native circles. Um, not necessarily recognition like a pat on the back, but I always said that my goal for the game was that I wanted a native kid to come up to me at a convention, somebody I didn't know, to come up to me and say, hey, I played Coyote and Crow and it was great. And that is happened to me. I would just said one. I only wanted one kid to do that. And that's happened dozens of times now. Dozens. And it's so gratifying. It's so wonderful. Um, people people want to be seen. And I think having this game and letting them feel seen is probably the, the biggest boost to my um, uh, uh, dopamine levels I could ever ask for. Um, so I think for me, my goal with the company now is to try to get that feeling more often. And that is, is that I want to diversify my games and reach more native audiences. It's great if non-natives play my game. I love that. That's very cool. Because um, hopefully I can bring some education in there along the way. And that's all great. But man, I just, I want to see more native kids smiling over my games. That's just, that's nothing better. Right. 
yeah, that that would be, and and I get that, like, because it's it's a good feeling to represent, you know, to to be to be to represent yeah. and be represented in things that you like. Uh, so yes, I, I completely absolutely. understand that, and that is super cool. And uh, yeah. I'm so glad for you to get to have that that feeling of having those kids come up to you uh, and do, and, and I'm guessing adults too, right? You know, adults. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, yeah. Sure. Adults too. Adults too. Yeah. Uh, right now, I think there's a sale on drive through RPG for some of you guys' stuff. So people can find yeah. your stuff on drive through RPG. And I think there's also a bunch of our roll 20 stuff, right? Roll 20 products and stuff they can get through drive through yeah. RPG and elsewhere. So we're doing a bunch of stuff for, uh, for native American heritage month all November. Um, not to knock on your Movember. No, uh, no, not Movember's at all. No. awesome too. Let's tell, let's talk about it. Yeah. So we're doing, uh, everything is on sale on Amazon. Everything is on sale on our, our web store. Uh, everything is on sale on drive through RPG, roll 20, the, the VTT version. All of that stuff is on sale. And all, all throughout the month, we're announcing, um, various partnerships, events and contests. Um, tom- what is it tomorrow? What is today? The sixth? Yeah. Tomorrow, uh, on November 7th. Um, the, um, uh, Hero Forge actual play starts. There's an actual play, um, with a whole native crew playing, um, on their Twitch stream, um, called Chaos and Cahokia. It was a, uh, was a, a whole campaign they played. Um, we are partnered with Start Playing Games. Um, they're doing a, a charity, uh, drive where if folks play games through Start Playing, they're going to raise money for a charity called Illuminative. Um, and we've got a whole bunch of other stuff that we're going to be announcing throughout the month. I, I can't give them all away now. There's surprises, but those are the ones we've announced so far. And, um, so yeah, I just, I want to find ways to kind of give back and get, get people involved. That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. And you have other products coming out too, or other yeah. products that are out that are out coming out. Yes. Uh, tell us a little bit about your dice game. Yeah, so uh, Nasi is um, my sort of spin. Um, I, I wanted to combine two worlds. One, I wanted a very like traditional, recognizable dice game that felt kind of like Yahtzee, like the old things that everybody, families would sit around the table and play. But I also wanted something that felt kind of like traditional indigenous games like Peach Pit or Sticks or other games that are often like have kind of a gambling or a push your luck kind of feel to them. And so I used, basically, I took my core RPG dice set, which is 12 12-siders, and I just said, I'm going to make a game with these dice, because that way people can also use the dice for the RPG if they want, if they're, you know, short on dice or whatever, they've got an RPG set. Not everybody has a set of 12 12-siders these days. I do, because um, I always wanted to have a tabletop RPG with die 12s. Just saying. Oh, just saying. Thank you. I grew up oh, with yeah. that. I always wanted that. If only somebody yes. went, oh, wait a second, you made one! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, details are, are are my favorite. They're so underappreciated, right? Right. Um, but yeah, so Nasi is just this quick, fast, family-friendly game. Push your luck. I didn't want anything complicated. Design-wise, I, you know, I worked with Daryl Andrews, who worked on Sagrada and so many other great games, and he helped me develop the game. I'm I'm the primary designer, but he certainly gets development credit as well. Yeah. Um, and but those that, that gave me the kind of confidence I think. Between, between the RPG and Nasi to jump into my own tabletop game development, which led to Wolves, our first um, full tabletop board game on Kickstarter. We did a hundred grand on that. And um, we're uh, hopefully right now, we're a little bit ahead of schedule on getting that game out to folks. Better um, knock on wood. Knock on wood. Stay ahead. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. 
Um, but yeah, hopefully early next year. Um, and it's unusual. And I think it's going to, I think it's going to be really polarizing because it is a three to six player semi cooperative game. And when I say semi cooperative, a lot of people are like, I don't know what that means. Um, so in our game, it's, it's a game where each player takes on the role of a community leader trying to make sure they have enough resources for their community to survive the winter. And you're never going to be able to generate enough resources on your own, which means you have to generate or you have to work on uh, on working with your other communities to make sure everybody has their needs. Um, and it's through a process called gifting where you're just giving away resources. The catch is, is that if any community fails to meet their needs and doesn't survive, everyone loses the game. The game just ends. So, but if everyone makes it to the end of the game, there can be an individual winner. And that's the person who most effectively and efficiently gave away their resources during the game through a thing called status. And this, this taps into some indigenous concept around like uh, gifting economies where you give something away for free because you can, but it's sort of a status boost because it's kind of like bragging rights. You're like, Hey, look, I'm such a good fisherman. I can provide for my people and yours. Um, so at the end, the player who has the most status uh, is the winner of the game. Um, so you do want to cooperate during the game. But you have to balance that cooperation with like, oh, they're getting a lot of status. And I want to make sure at the end of the game, I've got more status. So I want us all to survive, but I want to be top dog when we survive. Right. So we'll see. I, like I said, I think it's going to be a little polarizing because it's not a traditional win condition. And, yeah. um, and three you know, one person players, wins or nobody wins. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And three to six players isn't necessarily. I know. I know both two player and solo player games are really big right now. So uh, we'll see. We'll see how that goes. Um, yeah. And then I've got two other games I'm working on right now too. Can you, can you, can uh, you, can you talk about so, either of them at all? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the one that uh, I've sort of semi announced, um, it's on our web page. It's, it's called Seven Clans. Um, Seven Clans is a two to four player card game, um, and it is. Uh, loosely based on my own Cherokee um, um, mythology and uh, philosophy. Um, it's this idea of, of a wheel um, broken into four quadrants. Uh, it's a very simple uh, two to four player card game where you're trying to play cards into your quadrant and match symbols. It's a symbol matching game, um, but it's very family friendly and quick. And it's it's got a lot of backstabbing elements. There's a lot of cards you'll play that'll like discard someone else's card or swap the cards. So there's a lot of chance for um, shenanigans in the game. Um, and uh, yeah, so we'll see. I'm, I'm going to be hopefully um, play testing our prototype for that at OrcaCon. Um, that will not be going to crowdfunding. I'm, I'm, okay. It's not really a game that's good for crowdfunding. It's it's a game that I think is just better to, that it just comes out on its own. Okay. So um, I'm hoping actually for like an early spring release on that as well. We're we're pretty much finished with development. I just need to tweak the rules and, and go through some final stages of development there. Um, but uh, yeah, and then I'm working on a card game uh, based in the world of Coyote and Crow. Um, not a collectible um, and not a straight traditional deck builder either. Yeah. Um, it's more in line with like a living card game or an expandable card game Yeah. Um, where players are taking on... Uh, one of the five fictional nations in Moccasin, um, and then trying to solve challenges and be the first to, to score uh, a minimum number of points to win the game. Okay. So, right. yeah. I love those kinds of games. I, I love those. Yeah. So. yeah. I'm really excited about that one. I'm working with a great development team right now. We've got some awesome folks. 
Um, and uh, it's looking like it's going to be about a 200 card pool for the core box. So okay. lots of cards. Are there lots plans cards, for expansions and stuff maybe down the road for that? Yeah, absolutely. The idea will, the, the idea for my expansions are going to be that we don't want to necessarily just continually put out small packs. Like I know like Netrunner and uh, Game of Thrones and some of those others continually put out small packs. I think instead we're going to put out larger expansion boxes that have larger card pools and that are thematic around a storyline yeah. that sort of almost tell a, like a legacy style story. Okay. So, yeah. Excellent. But that's probably Excellent. not until later next year. All right. And do you think you'll put that on Kickstarter or crowdfund- crowdfunding somewhere? That will absolutely be on Kickstarter. Yeah. I think that one is going to lend itself to stuff like upgraded tokens and fancy play mats and all that kind of good stuff. So yeah. I'm going to lean into that. Excellent. So, Excellent. Yeah. One other thing, you know, and kind of closing in at the tail end of this, yeah. I, I also wanted to mention you and, yeah. um, and I haven't, and maybe it happens out there. Maybe others do this, but I really saw it and it really stood out for me is your, your library outreach program that you have. Oh, set yeah. up there. And I thought that was so cool. Uh, Thanks for mentioning that. And I, yeah. yeah, tell us a little bit about that and how that works and what people can do to participate. So it's so it's been an absolute mess. So one of the things that was really popular on our Kickstarter was you could buy a book for yourself or and or you could donate a book to a library. Um, and the way that the way that was supposed to work is, is that you could the person backing could sort of suggest where they wanted the book to go. But in case, you know, in case everybody suggested the Cherokee Library, the Cherokee Reservation Library, I didn't want to give all the books to the Cherokee Reservation Library and have other folks miss out. So I just said, hey, we'll, we'll give folks, we'll, we'll do some equity here, right? The books, will, we'll spread them out as best as possible. The problem was, is I never expected the fire hose amount of books to be donated. We literally have thousands of books waiting to be donated. And since then, I've donated a few hundred The problem is, is there isn't the infrastructure in place within our library system or the Canadian library system to effectively distribute those books. And I'm a staff of one, so I can't literally communicate with hundreds and thousands of libraries and community centers all over the country. So it's been uh, it's been a, a, a less than perfect effort so far. We do have a page on our website where we list out the places who have gotten the books so far. But. The good news is, is that coming at the end of this month, one of our big announcements for Native American Heritage Month is at the end of this month, we're announcing a new system. And I can't say what it is, but it's coming and it's going to solve this whole problem. And we're going to get all those books out. So I'm really excited about that, finally. Um, And so if anybody here is listening, if anybody's listening that is involved with like a community center or a library or a school that would like a copy of the book shipped to them absolutely free of charge, um, Pay attention to my socials or my website at the end of this month, and we'll be announcing how to do that. That's great. That's great. That, that's so exciting. I wish other game companies yeah. would do that because it really gets to me. I've been a big proponent of tabletop role playing for the youth and them learning because, yeah, like you talked about earlier, the reason you did halfway decent and you made it through college and math was because of role playing games. Yeah, uh, communication skills. You know, interacting yes. with other kids. Learning, yes. learning, communicate, like I said, communication skills and interaction skills and working problem together solving. and team building, yeah. problem solving. And a lot of those come from role playing. And yeah, and that's just not that well known. It's like, man, giving that out for free, giving that out to, yeah. you know, libraries and schools. That's just that that warms my heart so much. And I was so yeah. excited when I saw this. Like, this is going to be the last thing I, we're going to talk about uh, about that stuff before the, before yeah. the Q&A session. So I, yeah. I want, definitely wanted to bring that up. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned you're going to be at OrcaCon in January. 
Yes, uh, OrcaCon. Um, I'm tentatively scheduled right now for also GameStorm in Portland. Um, I'm almost positive I'll be at Gen Con this uh, this next year. Um, hopefully, packs you and maybe even um, UK Games Expo. I'm hoping for UK Games Expo, but we'll see on that one. I'm not I'm not sure yet. Okay, awesome, awesome. And people can find you at CoyoteAndCrow.net for the website. Yep. Yep. Uh, you're on X, aka Twitter, at Coyote mm-hmm. N, the the the, mm-hmm. the letter N, Coyote yes. N Crow RPG. Uh, YouTube at Coyote Crow Games. Yep. Uh, Blue Sky at Coyote and Crow, and Instagram at Coyote and Crow Games. Did I get all them all right. Yep. Yep, you did. Nailed it. Well done. I nailed it. So guys, go and check him out there. He mentioned going and checking all his uh, social medias. For the donation program, and of course, you can follow all the other things. Check out the website. You can see on the website the list of a lot of the libraries and schools that had stuff, and, and keep up to date on all that stuff. So, uh, yes. so definitely go and check that out. Also, listeners, coming up, we're going to be joined by New York Times bestselling author Michael Whitworth. He did the Heroes Feast D and D cookbook, Arts and Arcana, Lore and Legends, and a bunch, bunch more. That's going to be live November twentieth, right here, and the podcast will be available on the 21st. Also coming up down the road, Shannon Germain from Monty Cook Games is going to be joining us. Andrew Valkoskis from Fate of the Norns is going to be returning to Epic Realms. So please make sure to rate, review, follow. Also check out our YouTube and follow us there. And of course, if you can help us fight prostate cancer, testicular cancer, suicide prevention, and mental health with Movember, please, please do so. So for Connor Alexander, check out Coyote Crow Games. I am Nick, and thank you for listening to Epic Realms. Well, there you are. I hope you enjoyed yourselves. And I do hope that you come back and join us again for Epic Realms. <laughs>